Well, church, you can open to 1 Timothy 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to read this for us and then we will, we will pray. 1 Timothy 5, we'll read through verse 8. This is the word of our Lord. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so, Father, thank you for your words. Lord, as it has been said in the past, Lord, we thank you that the dust of this book is gold. Lord, even obscure passages that may seem to have little relevance to some of the lives in this room, Lord, we pray that you would shine forth glory and wisdom. And Lord, that you would change us through your words, Lord, because your words are living and active. And we need to be changed and made more like your son. And so we ask you to do that even in and through this time of teaching. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing on in this study of First Timothy, uh, making it to chapter five here. I think in your uh, in your bulletin actually it says a different title than what I'm I'm going to be aiming at today. It says something about honor, and we will talk a lot about honor. Uh, but I want to make a case for what I'm going to call a family-integrated church. I want to make a biblical case for that. Um, and, and we see it here, I believe, in chapter 5. And we see what we might call household honor codes. Household honor codes. These common codes of honor in the Greco-Roman society uh, that would have been normal ways in which you would treat your family. Uh, similar household codes we've seen in the history of Western civilization up until recent days, it seems, uh, has been largely lost. Um, when we speak of household honor codes uh, in the, the New Testament or Old Testament, uh, I, I think we're talking about things like uh, monogamous marriage, that marriage is only between a man and a woman, uh, that when a man and a woman come together, uh, they form a new family. We're talking about gender roles in marriage um, so that there's certain uh, that a husband is to lead his wife as Christ leads and loves the church and the wife to submit and honor her husband. Uh, parental authority, uh, that children are to be obedient to parents. 
Um, and so these honor uh, codes or, 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 or household codes of honor, we could call them, uh, th- this is not white man's patriarchal attempt to overthrow and, and, and dominate and suppress. This is God's good design uh, for the family. These are things that the scripture explicitly teaches. And here's how we know these things are right. Uh, I would say there's two, two levels in which we can know that these household codes are good uh, for for us and others, we know it by nature. By nature, uh, we know marriage between, is between a man and a woman. That's how f- procreation happens. That's how the world stays populated. Uh, only through a man and a woman. This is uh, clear by nature. By nature, we know a husband and wife are equal, yet they're different. There are differences in the roles that God has given to husbands and wives. We know by nature children are subordinate to and dependent on parents. So nature shows us these things aside from Scripture, but then we can go to Scripture and we get way more clarity. We could go to Deuteronomy 6 or Ephesians 5 and 6, Colossians 3, and on and on and on, and we see uh, specific instructions for these household honor codes. And so when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul is building on this foundation, and here's what he's about to get into. Adult children caring for their aging parents, or maybe grandparents in some cases. Uh, it's going to give definition to widows and different types of widows and how to care for those widows we'll get into next week. Husbands and fathers having a responsibility to provide financially for extended family in some situations, but especially their own, uh, their own wives and children, uh, or they're denied the faith, it says. I think that gives instruction here on relationships before marriage, what our culture calls dating, what uh, I, I don't prefer that term. I, I like a little bit more courtship, but I don't like that term either, to be quite honest. Uh, but I think that, that there's help here for that uh, for that season of relationships, and then younger members, how they are to relate to older members, and how older members of the church are to relate to younger uh, members. And so Paul's taking these household honor codes, proper ways in which family members in Greco-Roman society would have related to each other, and he's saying in the same way in the church, you're to relate to each other according to these codes of honor. And so fathers Uh, Older men treat them as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. And he's taking the honor codes of the family and saying these are the honor codes and the ways you relate to one another in the church. And that's a problem for our day, for Christians in our day. I, I see this as hugely problematic when I read this and thought, how do I begin to teach this? I thought, there's a lot of roadblocks to us being able to actually obey this passage. Because it's contingent on us knowing honor codes and observing those honor codes in our families. If you, aren't, if you don't have any codes of honor in how you relate to one another as a family, you can't even begin to do that in how we relate to one another in a church. The the family is the prerequisite to the church. That's the way it reads. And that's problematic for for anyone in our uh, culture, but even Christians. Uh, Let's do this. Think think back to, uh, let's go back in time, to 1740. 
early colonial America. And let's go back to, uh, to New Hampton, Massachusetts, uh, into the little chapel uh, that Jonathan Edwards, Puritan, would have been speaking to his church. And let's pretend he just reads the same verse I just read to you, uh, to the congregation there. And he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. And these people would have, would have thought, well, I know how to relate to my mother with all honor. I know how to honor an older person. Uh, I was taught that from a young age. I know how to honor a father. I know how to uh, live pure. We have understanding of what purity is. Right? There was a completely, there was, these things were built out. People understood these things in ways that in our culture and day and age, uh, many uh, do not. And so we come to something like this, uh, giving honor to these, uh, to these others in the church, and we go, honor? How, how do I do that? Never been taught how to, to honor. And so what I want to do uh, I want to I talk about the problem with giving honor as this passage is teaching at two levels, and then I want to look at the solutions from this text on how we should, I think, move forward in obedience to this. So here, here's the first place that we could say is a problem. It's a cultural problem. The first is a cultural problem. Um, and here, here's the cultural problem. We have failed to honor God. When you fail to honor God and you don't reverence and honor and value and make much of and treat as weighty God, then what will you do with his word? You will devalue, you will de-honor, you will not honor, you will not treat as weighty God's word. And if you don't treat God and his word as weighty and valuable and honorable, what will you do with any honor at any level. You will, you will not know what to do with it. Uh, there will be a great misplacing of honor. And, and so I, it wouldn't be helpful to say that our culture doesn't know how to honor. Our culture knows how to honor. Uh, they just don't do it rightly. According to Romans 1.21, which I think does apply to our day and age, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God but, or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. So our culture knows how to give honor to the environment, uh, to celebrities, to athletes, to the rich and the famous and the attractive. We know how to honor, uh, we, we kill our unborn, but we know how to honor pets. We don't have a problem with honor. Uh, we do have a problem with honor. We, we, we are honoring, but we're honoring in the wrong ways, the wrong things. Why? Because we're not honoring God. When we fail to honor God, everything begins to unravel. So the failure to honor God results in open rebellion to the laws and authorities that God has put in our lives. And so when God is not honored, parents won't be. When God is not honored, pastors won't be. When God is not honored, judicial authorities and laws won't be. When God is not honored, senior citizens won't be honored. When God 
isn't honored, everything that God has called us to honor will be questioned and rebelled against. And practically, we go, how, does that, how do we get to that point? It would be hard to not factor in, in our, in our context, the influence, or we could even call it the indoctrination, that's happened through TV and movies and media. Going back to when those, you know, TV was invented, and shortly after, we, we see, and I'm going to, it's a war on authority, but authority in two areas. I'll just parse out for a second. The first is a war on gender. This one is more obvious to us. I think we would uh, recognize that in movies, for example, you have, uh, you have the great evil character is often the man. Because what's the great evil in our society in our day? Masculinity. And so if masculinity is the great evil, then the great savior, the great hero is the woman who comes in against the great evil masculine man. Now the, iron, the sad irony is that often she embodies many masculine qualities in order to take out the masculinity a little ironic there, Um, but that's the plot line, a war on uh, gender. But the war on age is less noticed. Uh, I was talking to a brother recently in the church about this one, Um, but take Leave it to Beaver, for example. Let's go back to the 1950s, okay? You have a, a plot of basically every episode that's something like the kids get in trouble They get into some situation that they can't figure out. It's gone bad. But it went bad because they didn't listen to their parental authority. And they realized eventually that they should have listened to their parents. And because they didn't listen to their parents, they got into the bad situation. And then they go and get wisdom and and, and the world begins to work again. Now, think about the the TV shows, the movies, the things in our day. and, And what those are like. You basically have... Uh, children as the saviors of humanity, the parents, if they're even in the show, are passive, are non-involved at all, but you have the children who are the saviors, who are the, who are the heroes. And the, the problem that they run into uh, it will be found when they do what? When they go to their parents? No. When they seek wisdom in, 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 in places where you could find wisdom? No. When they look within themselves, they will find the wisdom and the courage and the power needed to conquer and save the world. And then at best, the parents at the end of the show will come and praise them and bow and you know, talk about how glorious and great the kids were. What is that? That is a war on age. That is a, a, a disdain for age and a glorification of youthfulness. And it permeates American culture. Um, And it makes it very difficult for us to learn how to honor those who are older than us because we disdain those, we disdain age, and we love youthfulness in our culture. And we would be we would be very naive to think we haven't all been affected by that at at varying levels. We see these anti-aging surgical procedures just uh, exploding in terms of popularity with a, often an obsess, uh, obsession with youthfulness. We see the rapid increase of nursing homes, which I won't get into whether that's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's part of this whole thing. Um, a little side note here. You know, we, we talked about last, uh, last Sunday, Paul mentions how 
uh, how Timothy is a youth. And we mentioned how he's, he's likely in his 30s in this time. Um, and that was considered a youth still in your 30s. And uh, I was doing some research recently and, and uh, was thinking about St. Augustine um, and how he, uh, in 354 AD, so just moving forward a little bit past Timothy, a few hundred years past Timothy, in the Roman Empire, the, the median age was, uh, oh, life expectancy was 30 years old. If you lived to be 40, you were old. Um, now, by the grace of God, Augustine lived to be 79. He was ancient in his day and age. Um, but, but here we live in, in a day in which I would say the only people that lived longer than us were pre-flood 3,000 years ago. We're living longer than ever, yet we're not satisfied with it. We are not satisfied with growing old and embracing the age and so what I'm saying is all of us in this American context are affected by the feminist movement more than we realize. We're affected by the anti-aging movement more than we realize. And uh, maybe they're minus, you know, 1% of the Christian community that, that rebelled against all the propaganda in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, minus that tiny percent, we're very affected by these things. And it affects how we relate to each other in the local church and in our families more than we realize. More than we realize. You know, tell a, tell a, young, uh, a young person, treat young ladies as sisters in all purity. And they go, as a sister? I don't know how. I never learned how to treat my sister in my family with all purity. And what is purity? You know, or... or uh, Tell, tell someone in our day, treat older women as mothers. And they're like, I've never learned to honor my mother. And likely they aren't honoring their mother now. So you see how difficult this becomes to do this in the church when many of these things aren't even being practiced in the home. And so that's the, the cultural problem. Now here's the ecclesiological, or we could call it a church problem, that makes this command difficult Again, let's go back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, and let's think about the Sunday school and the youth group movement that originated in those times, created by men like Clay Trimble, Trumbull um, and others. Uh, they meant well. They, they really meant well, and uh, I wouldn't even deny that God didn't use these things in ways. Um, but... There was a concern that these originators of the Sunday school movement and of the youth group movement had about these ministries, these age-segregated ministries. The concern was, if we create these things, it might make men neglect their responsibility to lead and disciple their children in the home because they'll be dependent on or they'll rely on the Sunday school teachers or the youth leaders to do their job and to bear their responsibility. And the, these things, it would be hard to say that their concern wasn't legitimized uh, when we invented these age-segregated programs. Now, let me just make a, a clarification here. Uh, I am arguing for uh, a family-integrated church. Okay? From, from 2008, when we started, this is what we were. We haven't changed. This is what we've always done. I've never taught what I'm 
teaching as, as, as explicitly as I am today, but we haven't ever preached this passage before. Um, but I'm not arguing for, when you hear family integrated, some of you think back to a movement about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, there was a strong family integrated movement where they would, they would essentially say nurseries like we have, nah, sinful, not right. You can't have a nursery, can't take the babies out, everybody's here. I'm not arguing for that. Okay, I, I have taught before that Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, other passages we can look historically. I don't think babies should be included in what we're talking about when we talk about family integrated. Obviously, if a baby's crying or there's things like this, uh, people moving out, that's happened all throughout history. Uh, I think we can find biblical support uh, as well for uh, at times having babies be absent from the gathering. But here's what I'm saying. There's no biblical or historical support for the idea of removing, say, a six-year-old or a seven-year-old or a, certainly not a 10 or 12 or 14-year-old from the corporate gathering. There's no biblical or historical support for that until you get to the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and onward. Um, there were no senior citizen classes where you remove the older believers from the presence of the younger believers. Every, because everybody thought it's a gift to have older brothers and sisters with us. This is a, why would we want to remove them? The invention of age-segregated churches in the 50s and 60s was, to me, as it seems, part of the larger cultural disdain for the inconvenience of the old and the young, and it has endured in large part because of the rise of consumeristic tendencies in many Americans to make church easy and convenient. And so the family shows up, and the husband uh, goes to the men's class with men his age, and the woman shows up, and she goes to the woman's class with women her age, and the, the kids get out of the car, and they run, middle schooler and high schooler, to the grade of their class with kids their age. And then the grandparents are off to the senior citizen class and the singles goes to the single class or what's often called the college and career class. And, I, and many of you know, I'm not exaggerating this. this is, I'm describing 90% of evangelicalism in our day when, when I give this description. Um, what happens when you condition a child to only experience the church or primarily with their peers? What, what will be the fruit of those kids, in those kids, when they become adults? And I can tell you what the fruit will be because we've experienced that I've seen it since the beginning of our church. Uh, the fruit will be that people expect to have a church or community or relationships with those in their age group and their season of life. Now, is that a good desire? Absolutely. All right, we just did kids' catechism classes before the service. Okay, we're not against, and we do youth programs, and we'll have youth things that, we're not against those things per se. We, it's good to be around those who are our age, but we can make more of that than the Scripture makes. We can make way more of that than the Scripture makes. And I would, in fact, I would argue God designed the local church so that you are mainly around those who aren't your age and aren't in the exact same season of life 
as you, so that you're with kids and teenagers and unmarried and married and married with kids and married with older kids and married with no kids and adult kids and those who are widowed. That's the design of the church. His design for his church that he calls what? The household of God is to feel like what? Family. With mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters in which you relate to each other in that way, like a family would. Proverbs 13.20 says this, Those who walk with the wise become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. That verse, that proverb, explains why many youth groups just don't work very good. Uh, because when you remove the wise, when you remove the parents, when you remove the older believers and you fill a room with younger, uh, with those who are yet to have gained wisdom, suffering harm will be the result. Now, maybe I'm biased, okay? I'm willing to admit, I, a, a lot of my friends, uh, since I became a Christian, are three times my age. Okay, some of my closest friends are people twice my age. I, you know, that's me. Okay, so maybe I'm biased a little bit on this. Uh, I love the fact that I can hold my daughter's hand and sing in church, uh, that we can sit and, and have a city group and all my kids are there. I, I love that. I, um, and so I'm not going to deny the fact that that's a personal preference of mine. But why do we, why do we value that? I would say we value it because the church is family. The church is family. And our experience of church is to be older men as fathers, older women as mothers, which implies a younger person should actually be in the life of and have a relationship with those in the church who aren't their age, who are older than them. It implies that. The, the command itself here implies that we will be relationally connected with those older than us. Um, and, and so those are some problems that make this very difficult to obey in our day and age. But here, I want to move now to some solutions from the text for us going forward. And I'd like to just kind of acknowledge the obvious here at first. You know, when Paul, as an inspired author, wrote First Timothy uh, 4 and 5, it wasn't an inspired thing to put chapter 4, chapter 5, right? There's no chapter divisions with the inspired authors. So he's just finished talking about godliness, and right after talking about godliness, it flows into what we're studying now, which shows us this is part of godliness. This is the fruit of godliness, is, uh, is how we begin to relate to those in the church. So it's very easy to feel godly when you're by yourself in your room in the morning and you're reading your Bible alone. We all feel quite godly in those moments. Uh, but being around God's people reveals a little more about how godly we truly are. You know, we can boast of our great love for Christ, but do you know how to know how much you love Christ? How much do you love his people? That's how much you love Christ. 
whatever you have done unto the least of these, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers, Jesus said, you've done it unto me. And that, and that verse, sometimes we go, oh, I went on this mission trip to Africa and I fed some water to the least of these. <laughs> no, the least of these, my brothers, are, 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 is this. His, his, his brothers and sisters that are gathered in your city. The, real, the, the followers of Christ that are brothers and sisters of, of Jesus Christ himself, localized here, really display how much we love Christ. You see how important this is. And then, and then we think about Paul. He's no hypocrite here. It's not like he's telling us that we should relate to the church in this way, but he doesn't do it. I, I love uh, to look at how Paul ends a lot of his letters. He'll just start naming names of people we would have never heard of unless he named them. But they're not celebrity preachers. They're not apostles. There's no way that we would know these people except that Paul names these men and these women that were significant to him, that he was living life with, that were his brothers and sisters in the church. So, so let's, let's be clear. God designed his church to be family integrated, not because it's easy. Easy is... Kids' church. Once you grow out of kids' church, youth church. Once you grow out of youth church, college church. Once you get old enough to get out of college church, you go to singles or, or new career church or whatever. And once you get married, you go to married church and then married with kids' church. And that's easy because everybody's in the exact phase of life, running into the same types of problems, having many of the same interests. But God chose a different and a harder path for us that's like a family, which isn't exactly the easiest design feature that God built into the family when you think about it. Um, God could have made us born as fully functioning adult humans. And we never age. And we just stay at our prime. But he didn't do that. He put dependent babies into a family, kids, teenagers, and then aged uh, adults. So that verse 4, look what verse 4 says, that you might learn how to make some return to their parents. So in the same way that your parents cared for you when you were dependent, a child, you now reverse that as they get old and become dependent and you care for them. That's a design feature in the family. And Paul's going, it's the same, same thing in the church. Verse 4, first learn to show godliness to their own household. Show what? Show godliness. This is what godliness looks like. Uh, to show godliness to their own household, making some return to their parents. And so, guys, we know it's very easy to, uh, to love, to honor those who have the, like the same hobbies and have the same interests and same similar common life experiences as us, uh, same education, same cultural background, all of these things. But God designed into his church these differences so that we would have to learn how to do what? Deny self. 
consider someone else more significant than ourselves. Sit and listen and learn from someone who isn't like you. And that requires godliness, and it produces godliness. And it's how God designed his church. Now look, look back at verse 1. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Um, I turned 40 in a couple of months, and uh, at 18 years old, I moved out from under my father's authority. I began to pay my own bills and live on my own at 18, um, but, and I was converted right around that same time. But I knew as a young believer, there is something very wrong about rebuking my father. It, it just feels wrong to do that. Um, it says, do not rebuke an older man, but treat him as you would a father. Which, which doesn't mean there's never a place to fight heresy or, or have a, a debate on, on primary doctrines or things like this. But it's just saying we need to be very careful and pay attention to a man's age before we go to rebuke him. Uh, Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So if anyone is caught in a transgression, be gentle in how you go and confront them with anybody, but especially how much more with someone who's older. Should we be extremely gentle in what that confrontation looks like? Um, I, I was... Uh, I was mentored by a man uh, who was in his, I think he was near 70 at the time. I was in my 20s. And um, it was a Paul-Timothy type relationship where he was it, was, it wasn't mutual. I wasn't ministering to him. He was ministering to me. And, we, and I realized at one point, we are very different theologically. Our understanding of scripture is very, very different. And I was seeing some things I disagreed with. And you got you got you know, you got options at that point. Do I just go in here and just open the scriptures and just go at him and just start, you know, rebuking him and trying to correct him? What posture do you take? And I, I sat down with him and heard him out, asked for why he did what he did and how he saw these things and tried to, to understand. Uh, and then I put some things before him very, uh, very respectfully and realized. I wasn't going to sway him, uh, and so I backed out and just said, thank you for everything you've done for me. I, I will always be indebted to your ministry to me, and it felt it was most honoring to him for me to, uh, to, to move on. I was thinking about these verses. Listen to Deuteronomy 19.32, you shall rise before the gray head and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. That land heavy enough for you? I, I, I'm too young to know this, but I've heard that there was a day in American culture when actually an older person would walk into a room and if you were younger, you would stand. I, I mean, I don't think we'll ever get back there. I'm not hopeful that we're ever going to go back there. But in the church, in the church, is it possible that we could begin to honor someone like that? 
an older person walks in the room and we actually recognize the fact that it wasn't a 13-year-old or a 20-year-old that just walked in, but an older man. I heard a, uh, a man tell a story once, and it really illustrates this well. He was, he was saying that he was driving with a young man in a car down the road, and they get stuck behind this person going slow. Eventually, they get to go around him, and they realize it's the senior citizen. It's an older man in the car, and the young, uh, the young guy is like, man, this old guy needs to get off the road. And the old man sitting there in the car with the young boy said, son, you need to be very careful. Many, many your age, the hardest thing they've ever gone through is, you know, level six bad guy in your video game. And that old man at your same age may have been behind the wheel of a tank putting foreign armies to flight. <laughs> we, need to, we need to back up and think about the weight of what is being said here. Proverbs 30 17, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by vultures. It's not an empty warning because we know in 2 Kings 2, the older prophet Elijah is walking down the road. Some boys uh, run out and begin to yell at him, Baldy, you think that isn't mocking his age? No hair. Look at this guy mocking him. And then what does that result in? God sends out of the woods two bears to maul those 42 boys. He goes on. Older women as mothers. Older women as mothers. I'll only give one illustration of this because it's all we need. Jesus Christ Himself. On the cross, dying for our sins. And who's He looking for in the crowd? He's trying to find His mom. And He says to His mom from the cross, Mother, behold your son. To the Apostle John. And then says to John, behold your mother. Treating older women as mothers uh, is, a, is a very important thing. It also says younger men as brothers. Younger men as brothers. Now, we use that word a lot in the church, in, in this church, brothers, brothers, and it's not a throwaway word. It really isn't. We're not saying bro. We're not saying the long version of bro. Okay. If you're under 20, say bro. That's fine. Um, but brother is theologically significant. It's a different word. It means something very different. Uh, in fact, the root of that word brother, uh, I would say, comes from the theological truth that's in Hebrews 4.11 when it says about Jesus he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Christ isn't ashamed to call us brothers. And anybody who knows Christ and is in relationship with Christ, spiritually speaking, not biologically, but spiritually, is a brother in a profound, eternal sense. 
It's a, it's a weighty thing to have someone call you brother. This is why Jesus said in, in Matthew 23, 8, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. You are all brothers. He said, well, what does that look like to treat someone as brother? Well, it, it, it takes humility, first of all. Um, we love in this church, and we've talked about Ephesians 5 a lot. We talk about it often in the context of marriage. And, and there's a verse, uh, what is it, Ephesians 5.23 that says, Wives, submit to your husbands. We don't think that's a bad word or something, or, or we like that verse. But what's the verse right before that? Submit to one another in reverence to Christ. That doesn't mean we, we read on and we, wives don't submit to their husbands or children don't submit to their parents in chapter after that or employees don't submit to their employers. We don't ignore all the other submission passages, but the one that precedes all of them in verse 22 says, submit to one another in reverence to Christ. That's very significant. So let me give a biblical example. Was, a, was Apollos wrong? to submit to Priscilla and Aquila's counsel to him. They pull him aside, husband and wife, and correct him. Was he wrong to submit to that? I don't think so. It's his brother and sister. It's his brother and sister. How arrogant do you have to be to, to not be willing to listen to your brother and sister? Uh, Apollos just understood this is, this is my family. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 46, or it says this about Jesus. While he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers, that's Jesus' biological mother and brothers, stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, and this is what Jesus says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? To his mom and brothers that are standing outside, he says this. And then he reaches his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's Jesus' words. And, and notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, uh, just because I've spent a lot of time with these guys and these girls, uh, just because I'm so invested in their life and they're so invested in mine and we have such a close friendship, therefore they're my brothers and my mother and my... No. He says, because they do the will of the Father, they are my brothers and sisters. And, and I, I emphasize this, church, because here's what often gets said in our day and age. Yeah, I know the church is a family. I get it. But I don't feel like that. Well, why don't you feel like that? The Bible says that. Well, because I don't feel like anyone's my mother. I don't feel like any of these guys are my brothers. I don't feel like the girls are my sisters. And because we don't feel that reality, we question if it's real. That, that's not the way the Bible reasons. The Bible reasons like this, you are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers and fathers if you do the will of the Father. If you do the will of the Father. That's true. Now I've got one more thing I want us to look at in this and, and then as we move toward closing and that's regarding dating and 
courtship. Again, not a huge fan of those words, but, um, and I won't say much here, uh, there's a sermon, I think, in 2015, if you go on our church app, you can find more teaching on this, maybe 2010 as well. Um, but just in closing, verse 2, let's look once more at this. It says, treat younger women as sisters in all purity. Treat younger women as sisters in all purity. Here's what we know. Uh, the modern concept of dating is unbiblical. I don't have time to define what, what I mean by dating, nor do I have time to define what I mean by courtship right here. But I will say in terms of like great definitions, but I can, here, here's what I think is very important for us to see in this text and will give us much wisdom on these topics. All relationships among Christians, especially non-married Christians should be very guarded and pure. So all relationships, if you're married with other married people or married and other singles, but especially a, a, a non-married with a non-married should be very pure and guarded. Uh, for our biblical counselors, um, they know this, and are, this is the practice of our church from the beginning, never counsel alone with a member of an opposite sex. Rule number one in biblical counseling. You don't go in a room and counsel alone with someone of the opposite sex. We don't do that. How many church scandals would be avoided if that one rule were kept? With all purity relating to another in all purity. Um, if we don't let someone like me or one of the other counselors, go in a room with someone of the opposite sex because we think that is dangerous. That is unwise. How much more unwise is it to put two young people together, unguarded, in private, and expect purity to result? That's the principle. Um, if I'm not going to put myself in that situation, why would I put a young person in that situation? Uh, it's, at the very least, unwise. Now, questions arise out of these type principles, like how far can we go before something is sin in a relationship? And that's the wrong question. The question should be, how pure can you be? Right? Treat younger women as sisters in all purity. All purity. And so somebody goes, well, well can you kiss? Again, wrong question. I'm not, gonna, I'm not giving an answer on that at all. I'm just asking this. Does it promote purity? Does it tempt you or them? Does it allow even a hint of sexual immorality? Ephesians 5, 3 says there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, for these are improper for God's holy people. So you be the judge on the wisdom of those things. And then someone goes, well, everybody in our culture does this. What are you talking about? This is absurd. Me and my wife, we dated before. We did. Did it result in purity? How did that work? It is a very, very rare exception that that unguarded type relationship would result in purity. And I'm not just talking about physical sin here. There are ways that, you know, there, there's Christian couples uh, that will be in some sort of dating relationship and they are physically pure. 
but then they break up and you'd think they got a divorce. What happened? They were guarded physically. Well, emotionally and spiritually, they crossed some serious lines. Um, These are things that have to be thought through. And I put the burden of thinking through them on the fathers and the mothers, but especially the fathers are most responsible to help a young man and a young woman to honor God and each other in these things. Guys, this is not legalism. I know some of y'all are probably just thinking, this is is extreme legalism. This is not legalism to say, until she's your wife, she's your sister in Christ. That's not legalism. That's what the verse says. Until she's your wife, she's your sister in Christ. Treat her with all purity. I'm not trying to say anything more than that. So fathers, for additional study, you can look at Jeremiah 29, Deuteronomy 22, Genesis 2, Ephesians 6, uh, which I think places the mantle of responsibility on fathers um, to find not a Christian boy, but a Christian man for our daughter, or to help her discern. And if, if... he's not ready, I think it's our responsibility as fathers to help him get ready. To spend the time to be patient and help him become the man that we want to hand our daughter off to. Um, you know, these things, I've, I've laid out a lot on this and I, I would, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll leave you with the, the counsel that was given to me because I think it has helped me with these household codes of honor if you just read the Bible over and over again, just front to back, front to back, year after year, these things become way clearer. They just do. I wouldn't advise go find a book on courtship or all this stuff. You can do that if you want. I would just say read your Bible a lot. And as you begin to think about the nature of relationships in the family, the nature of relationships in the church, these things make a lot more sense. Um, it really is that simple. May the Lord give us wisdom in these things, church. Um, I want to move us to the table and um, put this thought before us as we go there. This is a family meal. This is a family meal. Um, This is the place more than anywhere else where we remember, I belong. I belong to this people. These are my brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, I belong at this table. Um, And we know we belong at the table because of the work of Christ and Christ alone. He has cleansed us with his blood. He has adopted us into his family. And he calls us brothers. Um, If you're baptized and have placed your faith in Christ, if you are committed to a church, and you could take the Lord's Supper uh, with that church, um, Please join us. We would love to have you come to the table with us. If you'll be refraining in your bulletin on page two, you can find uh, some meaningful prayers. But church, uh, please commune with the Lord here. Think of what he's done for you. Think of the goodness of your Savior and your older brother um, as you come to the table. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord, and your design of the family is so wise. 
and all of our families have more dysfunction in them than we would prefer and more sin and more disorder and every church has more of that than we would prefer and so Lord would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word that teaches on these things Lord would you help us to order our families and to order the church in such a way that it looks like your family. Lord, help us for your name's sake to, as your church, rightly represent you as the household of God. Lord, we ask for help in this. Would you do it and strengthen us, Lord, even as we come to the table toward these ends. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.